Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 231, and today's guest is Lars Albright, Executive Vice President, Data and Services at MasterCard, and co-founder and CEO of Session M. Lars is a serial entrepreneur with multiple successful exits, as he has built companies to capitalize on the growth of mobile adoption. It's a fun discussion and a nice trip down mobile memory lane. Like, remember when you used to get billed by your mobile carrier if you purchased something like a ringtone? So not only has Lars had successful exits, but his last two companies have been acquired by two world-class organizations. I'm talking about Apple and MasterCard. Thus, he shares some great stories, including some insights into the negotiation process with Steve Jobs, which does not disappoint. For MasterCard, the acquisition has been a massive success as the company is rapidly expanding this division in Boston with a new 25,000 square foot state-of-the-art office space in Post Office Square, and the data and services team is hiring across the board. They are also investing back into the local tech ecosystem through various charitable initiatives such as Tug, Build Boston, Girls for Tech with the Red Sox Foundation, and more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around the key factors that Lars looks for when deciding to go all in on an idea for a business, his background growing up, and the details on his first startup, which was a photo sharing app, and how he later got involved with the team at MCube, all the details around Quattro Wireless, and how the company disrupted the mobile web, building Session M, and the tough decision to pivot a successful business, which led to its ultimate acquisition by MasterCard, Lars's experience as an investor, and how it benefits him in terms of continuous learning, hiring advice for building out your team at an early stage company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Are you hiring? If the answer is yes, then you definitely need a VentureFizz subscription. It's a turnkey solution to help out with your recruiting and employment branding initiatives. A subscription includes a company profile page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and ongoing promotional support. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lars. Lars, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you're a serial entrepreneur. I'm very familiar with the companies that you've been a part of that have been great outcomes. So we've got some, we got a lot to talk about is the upshot. So, so but to start things off, I want to talk about, um, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've had multiple success stories. Uh, when you're going into building a company, before you dive all in, like, what are the key elements that you that factor into that decision that this is something that's worth your time to pursue that's going to be large enough? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. So I think there's a few ways to look at this. One is around just the market dynamics and what's happening. And then the other is, is around people. So starting with the market dynamics, you know, typically I look for a, a shift or a change in the market that's happening. And it can either be Technology-led, where that enables new capabilities, or it can be consumer-led, where there's new expectations or behavioral shifts. Um, and then within that change, trying to see if there's a, a real problem or opportunity or challenge that you can you can sink your teeth into and really go go after. Um, you know, you can think about that, and we may talk about this later. But you know, the businesses I've been a part of, like a MQ, came about because we had this massive adoption of cell phones, and people wanted to buy you know, mobile content. So it was one of the first payment providers in that category, or Quattro came about because you had uh, a real shift of, of traffic and eyeballs into the mobile application space. 
our mobile website space really to start and then eventually applications. But then we thought, all right, there's an opportunity to do targeted advertising there. And then, and then Session M was really similar in the sense that we saw a shift in terms of um, really more of a challenge given how much activity was happening in, in uh, the application space and digital space. We saw this real need for a focus on retention and, and, and customer loyalty and we attacked that, that problem. So, so for me, that's things I look for. There's changes, shifts that create opportunities and challenges that you can solve with technology and software. And then the second piece I'd say is really is people for me. It's, it's can I find the right partners or be a part of a team that really can, can go after this and be successful and um, have fun doing it and you know, have a good, you know, a good set of relationships. Because if, if you don't have that, you, you really, you're going to struggle to get off the ground. So that's been a common, a common theme for me. So put those two together and, and you don't always get it right, but, but usually uh, those are the things I look for. Well, this is definitely going to be a uh, walk down mobile memory lane because we're going to talk about kind of like the foundational years to where things are today. But before we get into all that, um, let's talk about your background. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I I grew up in in Brookline, so just outside of Boston. Um, And I've lived out on the West Coast in San Francisco and New York City. And I went to graduate school up in New Hampshire. But I I have eventually made my way back to back to the Boston area. And and now I live in Brookline. So I've come Full circle. So I, I, I like to joke that I get a zero for originality, but um, but I absolutely you know, love being in, in the Boston area and, and Brookline's a great spot for uh, myself and my family. So uh, that's that's the, uh, the the story of, of where I live. And then I also still have you know, a lot of family that's uh, local and close by. Now, you're you know, involved in the tech industry, yet you are a poli sci government major uh, and then pursued investment banking afterwards, right? Is that kind of the foundational years to your first startup, right? Is that a good way to summarize it? Yeah, no, it is. And, and I think, you know, going back to your, your question of sort of um, what was I like as a kid? So I actually, I grew up on, on Allendale Farm, which is a, a local farm here in, in Brookline, kind of straddling the Brookline, Boston border. Um, so, so grew up there and, and had a lot of exposure to um, to, to that, to just the, the farm operation itself. And, and uh, my, my parents are both Entrepreneurs in their own right, uh, not in the technology space, but but my father is a former general surgeon and, and started his own cancer research foundation. And then my mother started a school called the Apple Orchard, which is a preschool that focuses on play-based learning and, and bringing in the farm environment to the, the school experience. So I'd say I grew up in a, a very um, supportive and entrepreneurial family, which kind of set me, set me out uh, to sort of think about the things that I do today. And then from there, yep, you're right. I went... Um, went to, to college and focused on um, government and political science and actually really with a, a, an interesting sort of sub-focus of that in, in African uh, politics was really where I, I, I found my sort of greatest interest. Okay, so uh, after Montgomery Securities as an analyst, the investment banking for a bit, you started a company called iTide Media? Yeah, that's right. So what was iTide Media? Because it, it had, I think from the research, it had 6 million downloads at some point. And this is 1999, 2003 timeframe. So this wasn't, you know, 6 million downloads might not seem like a lot now, but back then that's, that was good, like scale. Yeah, no, you're right. No, it, it was, um, well, I'll, I'll sort of tell you the story, but definitely 6 million downloads was a fair amount of scale. So yeah, so as you said, I worked worked at Montgomery Securities um, coming out of out of school. I felt like, all right, I, I I had the government piece, but I didn't have the financial training and, and accounting and finance and statistics. So I uh, spent 
a little time as an analyst out there. And, and that was, um, you know, it was a good experience to, to get a glimpse of companies and, and see, um, see different dimensions and how they grow. But I pretty quickly learned I didn't want to be on, I didn't want to be an analyst. I really wanted to, to jump in and, and kind of get back to, a, or, or get, get into an entrepreneurial setting. So I actually partnered with um, four other people. So that's, that's one, another part of the story is five of us started the business, which is always a little bit tricky. Um, and it really was focused on the idea that people would want to consume high quality images um, via their desktop. So that was kind of the, the thesis was, all right, you've got all this content that's getting put online. Uh, but it still at that time was hard to get high quality photos and high res photos. Um, so we took advantage of push technology, which you may have heard of back in the time where you could take advantage of idle bandwidth and deliver you know, photos. So when you went to access them, they'd seem like they were there in real time. And so we felt that that was an interesting space. We layered in the idea of sharing personal photos. So again, this is early. So this is kind of an idea ahead of its time in the sense that we, we recognize that people would like to share photos with family and friends. Um, and we did it through this downloadable viewer and people would go on and, and they download it on their desktop and it would kind of become a part of their, uh, an icon they could click on to launch. And we partnered with groups like um, Outside Magazine and we partnered with college sports teams and we would take these highlights and, and deliver them to people. And then we also let people send photos to each other, their personal photos. So it was a really interesting idea, but we just struggled to find a business model to support it. So while we were able to get people to download, we just couldn't, we couldn't get people to pay. So that was one challenge. Um, and there was no real, at that time, convenient way to pay, uh, to pay online within our, our viewer. Um, and then there was no ad market, really. There really wasn't yet a way for us to, to monetize. And we were able to get some sponsorship uh, and generate a few million in revenue, but we couldn't get it to really scale. So you know, the lesson I think that you're referring to is just, it was a good concept, it got some consumer adoption, but really we didn't have a business model to support it that could break out and become a larger business. Um, so that's one that we, you know, we ultimately ended up winding down after about four years or so, uh, but was it was a great experience. Was it really, for me, a great way to learn and make a lot of mistakes and, and kind of see, see patterns that I've been able to kind of shift and learn from uh, as I've looked at, you know, started new businesses. Yeah, there's elements that I could relate to that could be, other things like an Instagram or something, but like, what, what would you relate it to in today's terms? Like, cause this wasn't like a, like, was it like a flicker or is it more like, um, almost like, like high res photos, like a, like a Shutterstock on splash type thing, or. Yeah, I mean, like look, it's kind of a combination of, of all those things in a lot of ways. I mean, we, you know, we, we didn't have a, a real, like a social element to it at that time, but there's Instagram like pieces of it where you would have your channels that you would select, which are kind of equivalent to, feeds that you have in your, your Facebook feeds or Instagram feeds. So we kind of had that concept of select what you like and get this content. Um, you know, and then there's some of it, which is almost sort of like online, almost like online magazines or things like that, that allowed you to experience things in a kind of rich content, rich format way using images as sort of the primary hook. So yeah, so look, I think it's a combination of a lot of these photo based businesses that have actually done quite well. Um, but we just, we, we didn't time it quite right. And, and, um, like I said, we had some good adoption, but just couldn't get that business model going. Okay. So back to uh, New England and uh, what, like what, what led you down the path of going to Dartmouth for your MBA? So coming out of the, the iTad experience, I was feeling like I, I could use some time to, you know, both learn and reflect on what I wanted to do and take, 
take some of those, you know, that scar tissue and learnings and, and apply it maybe in a, an academic setting and just learn from a bunch of other people. And so that got me motivated to go back to, to school. And I just loved the fit of Tuck right from the start when I went and visited. I felt like it was um, just a really a great community. People who were there really wanted to be there. Um, it's, it's a very teamwork oriented place. Uh, and it just, it seemed like a great fit for what I wanted. And and then was able really to, to kind of carve out my own path around you know, thinking about entrepreneurship and starting businesses and really kind of tailor my, my couple of years there around that. So it was a great, it was a great experience um, and, and you know, really, really fun place to be for a couple of years. So how'd you get connected with the team at MCube? So MCube's interesting. So coming out of coming out of Tuck, I did not have a job at graduation. So I didn't do any of the traditional recruiting. I knew I didn't want to go back to banking, I didn't want to do consulting. Um, so really, I was I was conducting my own job search and, and I was networking and talking to people and getting some leads, but nothing that quite worked out. Um, and then I actually networked my way um, into Hamant at, at General Catalyst, who was nice enough to take my call. And we started talking and, and as luck would have it, he said, hey, I actually have one of my portfolio companies right now is looking for someone to help with business development. He said, you got to go meet this guy, Andy Miller. So I, I got in touch with Andy. We met you know, two days later. We had coffee together, and uh, he hired me the next day. And, and then I was I was working shortly thereafter. So that's uh, that was a, a great break to um, to get that introduction and have the timing be right. And, and that's how I started at MQ. And like, what was the core business? Like, I remember one of the customers was Deal or No Deal, where the uh, lucky suitcase or whatever the number would text or something like call this yeah. number to win you know, whatever prize it was like money or something, I forget, but that was like one of their, and like the operations would be go crazy at MCube when that like no deal, no deal was going on. Cause you guys are actually supporting it on the back end. Yeah. We had kind of a command, a central command room at, at MCube in our offices in Watertown or in our big conference room, we turn into this kind of big event during the deal or no deal. And it was, it was both because it was huge volume at the time. And then also it was this, this voting, you know, this premium SMS voting to determine the outcomes uh, that were announced live on television. So we really became part of the broadcast experience. Um, and so it was fun. It was actually really fun. It was kind of intense. You know, was, everyone would get geared up for it. Uh, it was amazing with the volume that went through it and the amount of revenue that was generated uh, was pretty substantial. So that was, uh, that was a cool experience. But really, you know, MCube was one of the early mobile ag aggregators to help like I mentioned at the top of the show to help with billing for, for content. And back then there was really the, the way it was done was you would buy a, a subscription or buy a joke or a ringtone or a wallpaper and it would get billed to your carrier statement. And, and MQ was one of the leaders in terms of helping to make that happen. Um, so that was kind of some of the very early forms of, of mobile payments. When you think about that, that's groundbreaking. Back then it was... <laughs> We, we know, you know, app stores and you just download something to your phone now, but back then it was like, you had this whole process of buying a ringtone and then you get it, it shows up on your bill the next month. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's amazing how much, how much the, the world has evolved since then, but that was really, you know, that was the start of it. And, and the, the MCube team, like you, you started off by talking about people. And that's the one thing that I did, you know, when I look at your history of companies, you know, the people there were always just absolutely just top notch. Um, and what I think is 
extra special about the M cube team is how it has spawned off lots of great startups have invested. Like it's, you know, the, everyone talks about the PayPal mafia, right? Well, and in, in Boston, I think the equivalent is, you know, the M cube or even like, you know, the Indeca mafia, there's a few of them, but uh, M cube, I think was the original one in Boston, at least. Yeah, well, it's good. Well, one, you're right. I mean, the, the good news for Boston is there's more and more of these, these mafias, if you will, that, that are um, having success and, and, and then spinning off and, and other people are coming off those companies and starting new businesses. So I think that's great for Boston. I mean, really exciting to see over the last decade or so how many success stories there have been. And I think there'll be a bunch more. Um, and yeah, I think MQ was one of the early ones. And, and that really was you know, what defined my time there. It was just exposure to a great management team. And you know, I was coming out of business school and I was really looking to learn and you know, it was one of one of those great teams that just was executing incredibly well. Um, you know, Jeff Glass, our CEO, was was phenomenal. Was still a really close friend of mine, and and really significant for me. I had the opportunity to work directly for Andy Miller and work with Ishwar Priyadarshan, or the two people that I ended up leaving and, and starting uh, Quattro Wireless with. So it really was one of those um, special businesses that was growing fast and you know, had a really strong team. And and for me, that was a great extension of my MBA because I really was able to kind of take some things I'd learned in a more academic setting and then really go see that in action in, in the MCube uh, uh, environment. And that was, that was great. That was a you know, huge break for me as I was thinking about pushing forward more and, and, and getting back into starting a business. Okay, so MCube was acquired by VeriSign. And then as you alluded to, uh, you, Andy, and Eswar went off to start a new company called Quattro Wireless. So what was that company all about? Yeah, so so Quattro was really um, it was Andy had gotten some in, initial ideas and had some conversations about the notion of mobile advertising and and uh, Ishwar had been doing a lot of carrier work and and sort of the two of them started talking and then I joined up with them and said hey look I'd, I'd love to to do this with you and I'm a big believer that there is going to be this next leg of growth in the mobile space um, and, and you know, look it was very early this is pre pre iPhone pre applications. You're still dealing with um, with mobile websites that were kind of not quite there yet, but all three of us really believed that there was going to be a shift of, of traffic and more and more growth into the mobile landscape. And we saw it with you know we, we watched it with Deal or No Deal. We watched it with the volume of these purchases that people were making, so we could see the trends. Uh, we didn't know a lot about mobile advertising. That was kind of the, the joke between the three of us. None of us were advertising people. Um, but we just believed that we could build a platform that would uh, create value in that space. So we partnered uh, together and, and we raised some money from Highland Capital and, uh, and we went out and, and started Quattro. And, and initially it was actually really more focused on building out a, a platform for carriers to white label. So for, for them to say, hey, we, we need a mobile advertising platform or solution for our own ecosystem. And so we were going to do that. But then we pretty quickly realized uh, and a little bit painfully that that those opportunities were closing fast and the carriers were building it themselves. And so we had to shift. This is kind of the, the classic early pivot. Uh, I've had a late pivot and an early pivot, and this was one of the early ones, but uh, we really had to shift and, and think about, all right, how are we going to capture this, uh, this trend? And what we went to is we, we really said, all right, we know the publisher side of the business the best. We know we've been working at MCube and at some other places with, with publishers Let's go help them establish a presence in the mobile website world. And then in exchange for doing that, let's lock up their, their mobile advertising inventory. And so that was really how we kind of got going. We went out and as you and I were talking about uh, briefly, we partnered with people like the NFL or CBS News uh, and we offered them free 
solutions and tools to put their content onto a mobile site that would render across all different devices. Uh, and we would do that either for a nominal fee or just for free. But then we said, hey, you've got to be part of our mobile ad network for three years and we get to monetize that inventory. In some cases, we let them sell as well, but we were the only third party that was able to do that. And that was, you know, it was interesting. It was a pretty easy sell early because people didn't really care about their mobile inventory. They said, hey, I don't, you know, what do I have? 10,000 people maybe go there, not even. Um, but what happened is over time and then definitely with the launch of the iPhone and, and the boom of applications that came thereafter, a huge amount of traffic started going to these, these properties. And so we were able to, to have a really unique network of inventory to go out and monetize and sell the brand-based advertisers. And then we had some really cool technology to, to do targeting and to make them good experiences. Um, and it really, we were, we were you know, not the first player in the space, but our approach uh, in terms of locking up the inventory and how we delivered the ads and, and really building the network in a thoughtful way was, was one that became um, really successful pretty quickly. And I, I remember it because I had a, like when I was doing my, uh, my headhunting days, I was at Quattro for a meeting and one of your employees showed me you know, the NFL mobile website, which was as a consumer seeing that for the first time, I was like, this is amazing, right? Like it looked great. Like it was just not something you were used to seeing from a consumer point of view yet. Um, and then it just, you know, shortly thereafter the iPhone launched and um, things just started to really hit acceleration mode of, you know, apps and then having ads in apps, which wasn't, you know, you were one of the first to do that. So you started to you know raise you know additional rounds of venture funding, but then uh, 2009 happens right where you know what was it 2008 when um, RIP Good Times you know was uh, published out there from Sequoia, and then 2009 was just a, I mean it was a rough year for me being in the search business. Never mind running a venture backed company. So you know talk about kind of getting through that time period because it wasn't the VCs weren't favorable on ad models at that point, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So they, they, they were favorable on much of anything at that point. So, right. uh, yeah. and, and we, and we were doing well, we were, we were starting to really grow, you know, pretty significantly. And we felt like, all right, this is, this business can really work, but we needed the capital and we kind of needed it at just the wrong time. So we, we went out right during that, you know, 09 crisis. 0809 crisis, and you know we had we had a good story to tell. At least we believe we did. But we we went. I think we went this you know somewhere between 55 and 70 venture meetings with people to try to go get money, and every single one of them was a no. And it really was one of those things where we'd walk in the door, we'd look at the, they'd have the big screen, you know, the fancy waiting room, and we'd see the market was down 880 points or 690 points, and we'd say, God, this is just this whole kind of macro environment is so negative right now. And generally, that's how people would, would you know approach the meeting. They say, "Hey, look, interesting business, but we're just not writing checks right now. You got to you got to hold on." And so, we really you know we were not profitable at the time, and so we needed to raise capital. And and, uh, and very fortunately, our insiders stepped up, and, and particularly um, Bob over at Highland was like, "Look, we we think you guys are a great business, and and we're going to fund you." And so you, you know the whole the whole insider group came together. Um, wrote what, what now is a sort of small, tiny check, but I think put about $10 million more into the business, uh, maybe a little bit more. And then they were rewarded for that because you know, about eight to 10 months later, we got bought by Apple. So it really ended up being a, a uh, not only the right thing to do for the business, but ended up being a very you know, smart financial decision by them. 
Okay, so this is this is a story I want to lean into here. So the the acquisition by Apple. You don't really hear about Apple acquiring too many companies. Periodically you do, and maybe they do, and it never even hits TechCrunch or whatever. But this is one that did, and it was a big story, especially in the Boston tech ecosystem, where like all of a sudden you heard this news, like Apple just bought Quattro. What what like everyone was like, oh my God, what what what, what happened? And in my research for today's podcast, I was I'm like, there's got to be this story out there of this acquisition. So I found a podcast that um, Andy Miller was on where he told this story. So, um, so how did it all come together? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So you know, none of us really would have predicted that Apple would have been the ultimate end game for us um, because we were very much focused on being this uh, cross-platform solution. So whether you were, whatever device you were on, a BlackBerry, an Apple device, Samsung, whatever it was, we had, we had the ability to make sure that the content experiences and the ad experiences were all really high quality and, and worked well. So we weren't we weren't known as just being an Apple you know, focused company, um, and so we never we didn't really think that they were they would be the ones that would emerge. Um, but it it actually started. You know, it's funny. I remember Andy Ishwar and I were in London, and, and Andy got a call, and uh, it was it was a corp dev person from Apple saying, "Hey, you know, we'd just love to get a sense of what you guys are up to. We're not interested in acquiring anybody, so don't you know, don't think that's what this is about. We just want to talk to some you know leading players in, in the space." And so that those conversations happen for you know a couple months uh, of getting to know them a bit. What turns out, sort of learning after the fact, they were going deep down the path with, with a company called AdMob, which is one of our competitors, a bit of a larger company focused more on uh, performance-based advertising. We were more known as the brand-based advertising guys with a high-quality publishing network. They were more of the large-scale performance-based advertising network. Um, but they were doing quite well. Sequoia back company and, and Apple had taken an interest in them and was negotiating with that, with sort of talking to different players, but then really started to lean into to the AdMob uh, company and, and made an offer to, to acquire them. Um, we didn't know any of this at the time. We were just kind of talking to them and waiting and sort of thinking maybe there's something here, maybe there's not. Uh, but then what turns out is, is Apple and AdMob were pretty deep. Google came in at the last minute, tampered with the deal. Steve got furious and said, I'm, I'm not talking to these guys again, they're, they're gone. Um, and then they came back to us and they said, look, we, we, we actually do wanna start talking. It is more than what we've been saying. We do wanna acquire a business in this space. Um, and it really was about Steve's concern you know, about Google getting an, a head start in terms of developers thinking that Google is the place to go because you can make money from advertising. So he felt exposed in that front and wanted to make sure that developers looked at Apple as a, as a way that they could not only put their, their applications out there, but also they could make money and they, and they wouldn't have to go to third parties to do that. So that's initially where the interest started. And, uh, and then once, you know, once he leaned and he was you know, personally involved in the deal and once he leaned in, Right, like, did you have to? Did you have to present to him and like pitch? Like, what? Yeah, Andy did. Andy did. Uh, you know, a few times, or at least at least a couple of times, in one sort of big final meeting. Um, and so, yeah. So he was. Look, it, it wasn't again in today's terms. You know, it wasn't a massive deal, and for a company as big as Apple, not huge. But it was one of their larger acquisitions at the time, and and uh, we were just kind of amazed that uh, that Steve was as involved as he was and, and really knew, you know, knew the details. Um, and I, I remember actually one, one, one great story was we were uh, negotiating price and uh, we thought we had agreed to a higher price with our CFO one night. We'd been late at night on a kind of tense call at the one in the morning. And we thought we had a price that was higher and you know, we kind of, we pushed it up. 
Um, and then Steve called Andy and basically like, what is going on here? I told you my number and that's the number. And then he said, these things don't get better with time. And then he just hung up the phone. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> take it uh, or leave it. <laughs> take it or leave it. So which, which at that point we were like, all right, we got to take this thing. So um, anyway, so yeah, so he, it was a, it was an intense process, but, uh, but really exciting. And this is also a time when, you know, Apple, uh, as it's amazingly continued to do to today, but, but was really just pushing forward incredible innovation, was about to launch the iPad. Um, and it was just a really exciting, you know, it was an exciting outcome for the business. And I, I'd say it's one of those ones, um, you know, when we announced the deal at Quattro and our little offices in Waltham, you know, people started cheering and crying. And, you know, it was really, it was an exciting, uh, you know, ride to be a part of. And that was a big exit then. I mean, now you hear crazy numbers, but that, back then that was like, mind-blowing type of numbers. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, it, it was great. And it was, um, look, it's one of those startup stories that really was you know, a little, about four years or so. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it was a packed in four years, but it was, um, it really kind of had that fortunate timing. And that's, look, that's really, I, I give ourselves credit for recognizing back to the top of the show that, that the shift in the market and seeing what, what uh, might happen. And, I think we put ourselves in a good position and then it just, it takes, you know, a lot of good fortune and luck to have the outcome happen. So what was the experience like working at Apple? Yeah. So Apple was, it was great. You know, it was an exciting place to be. It was really for me, just an, an amazing learning to see the way the company was so focused kind of on excellence in its various areas. I and mean, everyone, it's a company that really, each group has a mission and they put their heads down and they, they go after it with a, or sort of a relentless pursuit of perfection on that front. Um, and so I, you know, seeing that at scale and, and the way Apple did it was really kind of fascinating. And, you know, one, one analogy that, that I learned, they, they had this one, one story from that is they have their developer conference, um, their worldwide developer conference. And I remember Ishwar and I were giving, uh, I don't know, it was probably the equivalent of a six minute talk about, IAD, which is what we launched it at, at Apple. So, so Quattro became IAD, which was this sort of splashy, big uh, brand-based advertising play that, that Steve was personally involved with. And he talked about some of the early advertisements that we brought in. Uh, but we were giving a talk and it was, again, it was about a six minute talk. So in, in, the, in the startup land, we probably would have you know, prepped a little bit and said, all right, great, we got it. But we met at Apple, this was very indicative of their culture. We met every week for about eight weeks for, one to two hours on, I think it was like Thursday afternoons to just practice the pitch, practice the pitch. And what's amazing that I sort of learned is that they really, they go to great lengths to make everything work well at the finished product. They really, but it's a ton of work behind the scenes. It's not like it all just happens. It's an unbelievable push and attention to detail and obsession about how things are going to go out. And then you see that in their products, you know, it was, it was really kind of indicative of how you see them put their, you know, their hardware and software combinations into the market. So that was one thing that I took away is, you know, they really, they make it look beautiful and elegant and easy, but, but they put an incredible amount of work behind the scenes. See, this is why I love this podcast because I discover little nuggets. So, so wait, so you were, you presented at one of those conferences on stage. So were you coached? Because the way that everyone speaks is just so perfect, right? So you talked about, we met consecutive for eight weeks. Now, were you coached on how, like, I, I would be shaking in my boots at that event because it just like, seems like you, know, you could be speaking, public speaking really good at it. It just seems like there's such a lore behind those types of events that if you screw up, you're going to be 
Donna Apple. <laughs> yeah, well, well, so we did feel like that a little bit. Now, now, granted, ours was not one of the keynote. You know, we weren't one of the main stage big presentations ah, okay. that you know, all the press is watching. Got so it. this was not this is not that, but it was you know hundreds of developers looking to hear about this new business unit and, and what did it mean for them. And ultimately, we we're trying to use it as a way to build momentum to get our network growing. So there was a lot of pressure on that front. But but yes. They, they didn't have professional coaching per se, but there were people that would watch us do our little spiel for you know six minutes. And then they would provide commentary on, well, you, you move too much to the left of the stage. You should stand more in the middle. You, you shouldn't say these filler words so much. So, so yeah, you do get some coaching along the way. And then really what it is though, is just repetition. It's just repeat, 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 make sure you don't say certain things. I and mean, then what you say and don't say is very important there as well. So it was again. It was a great experience in in preparation, and you know, just making sure that when you actually go to deliver, you've got something that really works. All right. So off to the next company. So Session M. So what's uh, led you down the path to start that? So yeah. So so I, I really did. I enjoyed my time at Apple, but I I knew I, I had this you know, desire to get back into building another company, and so I really liked the idea of you know taking that next step um, and, and trying to build another business this time be the CEO of the business. I learned a lot from from Andy and, and working really closely with him in the Quattro years and I felt like I learned a bunch from back to MCube and observing Apple. So I was like, all right, I think I'm ready to take a shot and, and, and run a business. Um, and I started to look back back to my comment around seeing opportunities or shifts in the market. I started looking at a bunch of the data in the uh, application space and because we had this kind of reams of data at Apple where I was able to look at look at various uh, stats. And one of the things that always stood, uh, stood out was just how much churn there was in applications and how hard it was for application developers to keep their users. So there's a lot of focus on, on acquisition, but there was not that much attention on retention and building that cycle of loyalty and repeat usage. So I started to get pretty interested in that. And then around that time, I got introduced to, to Mark and Scott, Mark Herman and Scott Weller, who were trying to work on a more of a gamification gaming business. And they were working on Highland's offices and, and given my connection with Highland from, from Quattro, I got put together with um, Bob Davis, introduced me to Scott and Mark and just said, hey, look, you guys should, should talk a little bit. You have different backgrounds. Scott and Mark were coming out of Game Logic, so they had more of a gaming background. I was coming out of more of the mobile and advertising space. Um, and then we just, you know, we just started talking. I, I told them what I was thinking about. They told me what they were working on. And we really thought there might be a good, a good fit. And so the three of us teamed up. Um, we raised money from, from Highland again, and then also I developed a relationship with, with Kleiner Perkins through their work with, with Apple. And I'd done some talks and things with Matt Murphy over in the iFund at Kleiner. And so we raised money from Highland and Kleiner. And I, I, I laugh about this now, but, but probably not the, the smartest thing. I, I finished Apple on a Friday and closed the term sheet that evening and started working on, on Session M on a Monday. So that was a a jarring, uh, a jarring <laughs> switch, but uh, but anyway, but it was but it was great to have um, the, you know the team and capital in place, and we were excited to get going. Well, I you know again back to my headhunting days, I, I met with Mark at your offices in the early days, and like I, I remember it was like a loyalty system, like the New England Patriots was an early customer, and. That, you know, it was like you'd be part of their community and you could earn loyalty points. Like it was a gamification of watching videos and doing things on the New England Patriots website to earn points. 
Yeah, so our first, so this is this is where, and I referred to earlier around kind of Quattro being an early pivot, and this was this was a late pivot. So what what Session M has become and turned into is quite different. But what we started as was really building out um, what, what we would describe as a loyalty coalition of mobile applications. So bringing together at our peak probably close to two thousand mobile apps where you could earn uh, for consuming content, interacting with sponsors and advertisements. You could earn this common currency across all the applications. So think of it almost like an American Express Rewards, but for applications. And we would, similar to kind of past endeavors, we would monetize it with big brand sponsors who were saying, great, I can get this captive audience. Um, you have this first party data because everyone would have to register to be a part of the community. So it was not just, hey, we, we've got some cookies or we think we know something about our users. We actually have first party declared data that we can use for, for targeting better experiences. Um, and then we felt, you know, there, there was a network effect that people would use. They download one app. Uh, we ultimately ended up calling it M Plus Rewards. You'd be part of that experience. Then you'd find another app that had it. So whether it was Zynga Games or it was the Weather Channel or it was a news app, we had all these different categories of applications that you could you could be a part of. And, and what we found is it really increased the return visits. So we really were able to elongate the cycle um, so people wouldn't just acquire and then in seven days have this huge cliff and then 30 days have even more people and by 90 days have a very small fraction of the group they, they acquired. So we were able to move the needle on customer retention. Um, and so that's, that's really what the business was for the first three and a half years or so. And, um, and we built, we built a, a meaningful scale business that was growing, kind of doubling in revenue, um, probably hitting around 30 million or so in top line revenue and probably going about to double that again. But we had this real challenge where we, we kind of said, is this business really gonna make it in terms of its enduring nature of it, the financial characteristics? There was a lot of headwinds around. At that time, mobile ad networks were, were kind of getting a, a bad rap. And even though we said we were not a mobile ad network, we'd get lumped into that group. Um, and so we started to take a hard look at the business and, and in my gut and the senior teams got, we're like, this just doesn't quite feel like it's gonna, gonna make it the way it is now. Uh, and, and have an outcome that we, we really are excited about. So we started to think about what are ways that we could take our platform and our approach, but apply it a bit differently. And that's where we started to make this shift um, about three and a half, four years into the business to become more of an enterprise software model where we would take our platform and say, look, you can get all the benefits of first party data management, driving loyalty and retention, delivering experiences, rewarding your customers, but you're not going to do it as part of a coalition. It's just going to be about your digital properties. Uh, and we got a really great break where we signed some large deals with AT&T and, and then a Japanese e-commerce company called Rakuten. You know, these were big multi-million dollar deals that were high margin licensed, you know, software licensed deals. Um, and we said, wow, there's, there's something here. And then we just kept going on that. And we signed Coke and Kimberly Clark. And um, we just built momentum around this notion that you need to think about customer retention, building loyalty, um, and, and that ultimately ended up being the kernel of what is now the, the Session M platform. So it was a big shift, and it was one where we had to take a business, again, that was growing high in the top line revenue, but we didn't love necessarily the margins and the profitability path. We didn't love some of the kind of the user metrics we were seeing. So we wound that business down to zero as we built another one up to, you know, 30 plus million in enterprise software revenue. And that was a, you know, that was a really, Challenging time, I'll say. You know, it took, I thought it would take about six to eight months. It took about you know twenty four plus months, um, and it was you know trying to maintain that high growth while you're while you're uh, deprecating a business um, is is certainly 
certainly a, a challenge. I don't think what I'd want to do again, but it was an, it was a real learning experience going through it. Well, what was that conversation like in you know the the boardroom level? Like, was it like you just go in to your typical meeting and say, "Hey, we're going to change our business"? It was an evolution that they saw coming. That it wasn't like a surprise when you kind of ripped the bandaid off. They saw the evolution, but but obviously it's always a little bit jarring, you know, as an investor when when you're a company says they're going to go in a, a different direction, but, but they also saw, they saw some of the things we were, we were thinking about. They, they saw the opportunity. Fortunately, we had some customers that were validating our, our approach. So that was helpful. Um, you know, I actually showed my conviction and, and, and sort of sparked the round of capital. I put, put some of my own capital in to say, look, I believe so much in this shift that, that you guys should too. And so that, that, help them say, all right, well, like he really does believe this is going to go somewhere. The team's really excited about it. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it was obvious, but, but people felt like it was a, it was a, they could see why it was a better business going forward if we could pull it off. And so they were willing to take that, take that bet. Cause you moved away from being an ad tech or lumped into the ad tech category to now being a MarTech, like marketing tech play. Yeah, that's right. Look, we, we, we really, you know, Session M has zero advertising revenue. It hasn't for, you know, five years plus. It's all, it's all software license, uh, licenses, a combination of software and services that we, we offer up our customers. And, and really the, the sweet spot that we found is, is most all customers, and for us, we focus on big categories like retail, QSR, travel, uh, CPGs, all those, all those businesses, those large B2C enterprise companies struggle with one, how to bring in data, how to create a, a way to access, access that data, do segmentation so you can then drive better experiences. And so that's really what, what Session is all about, is helping these companies understand their data, create this customer profile for engagement, and then deliver whether it's a loyalty program, it's a personalized offer, it's an email campaign, whatever it might be, our platform is powering that for uh, for these companies. And, and we, similar to, to some of the other companies, you know, we've been able to work with a lot of great, you know, great businesses and, and great large um, B2C businesses. And so it's been, um, it's been a, you know, a good spot to be and also seeing that shift where people really understand the importance of, of customer retention and particularly coming off of COVID where you see, you know, obviously it was a hard time during COVID for these businesses, uh, as you can imagine, airlines and restaurants and all, all were struggling, but it's reinforced the, the need for customer loyalty, for thinking about how you're going to win back your consumers, how you're going to keep them, how you're going to get them excited about your brand. Um, all that stuff has really become very, you know, very important and powerful for these businesses. So obviously, uh, you grew the business to the point where MasterCard was interested in acquiring the company and did. So how did that all come together? Yeah, so it's an interesting story in that we were we hit a, a point where we said, all right, we've got to think about what our future looks like. You know, we've gone through this big pivot, we've built up a new business, we think this business is pretty attractive, but you know, how are we going to take it to the next level? Um, and we started to have conversations in the market around, you know, look, should we go out and buy some businesses? Should we work with a PE firm and kind of really, really make take a big swing and, and bring in a bunch of money and go go think about different ways to expand the business? So we started having those discussions. Um, we started talking to a few strategics. Uh, interestingly, you know, MasterCard was not someone we'd ever talked to in the past. So this is pretty unique in the sense that typically you don't sell to a large strategic without having a, a long-term relationship. Um, and we had spent a lot of time, Salesforce was, was a strategic investor and, and, and actually a fairly large investor. 
of ours over a couple rounds and we had a very tight relationship with them. And we'd, we'd often had this dance with, you know, they, are they going to be the ones, you know, it really makes a lot of sense for them. They just were never quite ready to make the leap. Um, but then MasterCard came in and it really was one of those things that just hit their strategy around wanting to expand their technology and solutions and services to merchants. Um, and so really the, the, the timing was just right in that they had made a strategic commitment to go and build in this category. Um, they believed they needed to acquire to jumpstart those efforts. And, uh, and we started our conversations with them and uh, it took some time. It was not a quick process, but, uh, but we were able to you know, come to a, a good outcome. Um, and, and as I said before, we're going to launch this merchant, uh, merchant practice within the data and services group at MasterCard. So how did that conversation even begin? Like did someone from the biz dev group at MasterCard reach out just out of the blue or? No, we had, we had an advisor that was helping us kind of talk to all these different players, uh, which is also makes it even more unlikely because you know, the thing you tell, like the, the, the chances of a, of a, a banker reaching out to a strategic that you don't know and actually getting traction is incredibly small. Uh, and I tell that, I tell that to my you know, companies, I'm investors. And I'm like, look, you're just not, this is not going to happen if that's how you're going about it. Um, so now I have to, I have to modify that advice and say, it's very rare that it happens. It can happen. It's just very rare. <laughs> I just, I just wouldn't bank on it and I wouldn't bank on it again. Um, but right. it, it, it just, this is where timing becomes so critical. And we just were really fortunate that MasterCard had made a decision that they really wanted to go find a business in this category and they needed to jumpstart their own efforts and they couldn't do it quick enough organically. So, you know, I think had it been different timing, they probably won't return that call, but it just happened to hit at the right time. Um, and then, you know, then from there, there was a lot of alignment on how they were thinking about the market, how we think about the market. Uh, they really, they do a lot around loyalty in the issuer space. So they get that category, they get, they get loyalty, they get offers, they get, uh, but they don't do much, you know, they had not done really, I wouldn't say any, but very little in the merchant space. So they looked at us and our customer base and our approach and the fact that we were global um, and had a cloud-based platform that was more modern than what they, they've been building on and said, all right, this is, this is a way for us to help bring uh, innovation and, and grow that business. So, so really what, what was also, uh, but it was, I will say it was a stressful time for us because we were, you know, again, we were not profitable. We needed to figure out, are we gonna raise money? Are we gonna sell? Uh, and it became a pretty stressful, the transaction kind of dragged on a bit and had some drama at the end of it and it became a pretty stressful time, but, but uh, ultimately it came together and, and what was really great about it and is to this day is we were able to give everybody in Session M great job opportunities. Uh, it was not a deal where there was any downsizing whatsoever. Uh, and, and as you think about it, that was just about, you know, four or five months before COVID. And so it's, it's been one of those great things for, for me, and certainly as a CEO and a founder, to feel like we really put the business and our employee base in, in a great spot. So that was um, that was a, a a big part of it for me was having that be a part of the outcome. And the business has been expanding since then too, right? It has. No, it's it's really I mean, look. COVID put it you know an odd pause in the market uh, for I think a lot of people, and certainly for for the merchant landscape that we were focused on. But but as I also mentioned, that the broader trends have come on incredibly strong, and, and Mastercard's been investing in the business. We've been growing, growing our teams, growing our customer base, expanding quite a bit globally. So one of the one of the interesting things about Mastercard is they're just incredibly global companies. So they've got a presence everywhere in the world, as you can imagine. And so we we were a predominantly North American company, but had a little presence in Europe and and in Singapore. And we've since really expanded those those um, efforts. 
and now Latin America as well. So we've been able to grow internationally, grow our customer base here, invest in our technology, add to our team. So it's been, you know, they've been a great acquirer and, and, and really have uh, invested heavily in the business. Now, another part of uh, where you spend your time is uh, as an investor and it's different layers of, it seems like, you know, angel investing, you're also, um, you know, an LP. So talk about why you got involved in investing and why it's a good idea for other founders maybe to do the same. Yeah. So look, I, I think for me, I, I really do love to invest in, in businesses. So I, I learned that by kind of dabbling a little bit early. I invested in Quattro back in, you know, when we started the business, the three of us put money in. So that, that was probably my very first angel check was actually putting money into our own business. Um, but I, I just, I, I like that. I, I like that process, I, I guess I'll say. But you have to take a step back as a founder and, and think about that. I know some people that don't. So it's not a, it's not a no-brainer to say every founder should be investing in other businesses. Um, I, I think it really has to be something that you enjoy doing you like. For me, part of why I enjoy it is it just opens up my exposure to a whole different set of, of companies, teams, problems, opportunities, technologies. So I ultimately really just, I, I learn a ton by, by the investments that I make. Um, and I find that makes me better as an operator. So it really, it is that thing where I love to provide help and guidance where I can. And I also love to learn. So it really ends up being this two-way street where I can see a lot of interesting things from the businesses I invest in and then take that back to my own thinking in my own job. So, um, so for me, it's really, it's, it's an additive thing and it's not a distraction, but I know for some entrepreneurs, they find it, I, I just can't handle it. It's too distracting and, and it's, it makes me too nervous. And how do I know what's going to happen to my money? Um, but for me, it's just been a good fit. I've really liked Mr. All Elements of it. And, and as you know, it doesn't always work and, and you learn something from those as well. Um, so it's been, it's been fun for me. But sometimes it does work. There's been some great outcomes of late, Drizzly yeah, and Filpac. So, sometimes it does work and, and, and certainly a good market helps that. Um, and, then, and then it's fun too, because you, when these things work, there's, as you, we talked about before, there's kind of the the next iterations of those teams going off and doing things. And so there's just kind of this continuing effect, but, um, but yeah, no, I, again, I, I really enjoy it. I, I would say I, I do recommend it for people who think that you know, they, they have the interest in it. I think it's a great way to continue to learn. One of the common elements that we've talked about a couple of times during this discussion is uh, teams and the importance of teams and bringing together great teams to build great companies. So like, what advice would you have on hiring for those early stages of a company versus you know, the scaling mode? Like, There's different types of people that may succeed in those different buckets. So what, what advice would you have there? So early, I think you've really got to look at your founding team and look at yourself and figure out what is it that we need to bring on that either brings skill sets that we don't have or complements some of the things that we have. And really, how do we round out that founding team? And that, that's kind of where you, you start. So I think that's very different than when you're in scaling mode, where it's much, much more specific about, all right, we need a go-to-market specialist. We need someone to manage marketing. You start to see more functional-based requirements, whereas early you have these big areas where you say, all right, like, do we have the right engineering sort of knowledge and leadership? Are, are we strong in the product side, you know, what, what, what else might we need? So I think one, you start looking at your team, your founding team and where do you need to, to complement that? Um, and then, and then sort of thinking about, again, some of these just bigger traditional areas um, that are important. So for me, for example, early in the session days, I felt it was really important. Um, and I learned this based on my Quattro experience that we really needed a strong head of sales. So 
early on, I brought in Bill Clifford, you know, really just a few months after we started. So he's kind of in essence part of the founding team. And um, it was probably very early to bring on that hire, to bring on a seasoned sales executive. But for me, I felt like it was going to be important to have that in place and have that person be a part of the, the journey and the evolution of the business. Um, and so that's where I just made a call where I, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this, this hire. You know, where I made just kind of continue on this early hires, I was pretty reluctant to hire a CFO early. And so I, I probably waited too long to do that. I kind of waited a couple of years into the into the company to bring on a formal CFO. And that's something I, I had some good early financial help and a good partner there, but it was great to sort of bring on a, a CFO type eventually. So I think that's something you have to think about. So look, part of it's your own orientation and comfort with certain functions in the business. Um, part of it's sort of, again, making sure these major categories are filled. And then really, you know, I guess another part is just opportunistic too, like where you find great people that fit your culture and your business, you try to bring them on board. But I will say, look, there's also another consideration here is if you are a sole founder versus a team. So if you, if it's just one person, you're going to have, you know, a different set of, if you're a product founder and you just, you have nothing on other sides of the business, you're going to probably be more uh, focused on that. Whereas if you have a, you know, three, three people starting it, you each have your own skill sets, then you kind of in from there. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Oh, gosh. All right. I'd have to say, um, I don't say, you know, Waze is up there just because I spent so much time driving my kids to sports events and sports games. And so I, I wouldn't know where to go if I didn't have that. Um, I'd probably say I'll, I'll go with Pandora just for music. I, I got locked into that brand early. So I'm often, often using that. Um, and then maybe I say Starbucks. They're one of our big customers. We, we power a portion of their their uh, loyalty program and application. So I, I use that quite a bit as well. I I, I I mean the Starbucks loyalty reward program is phenomenal. So I mean there's there's obviously the technology and the team at Starbucks that makes it all together with Session M. It's just by far like the greatest loyalty rewards program, and it gets me every time as far as you know, getting enough points to get that mug, I'm going to get there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great. I mean, look, and that's, that's a great example of, you know, kind of modern customer loyalty in action and how they, and also just a great user experience. I mean, part of what sucks me into that is it just has a really strong flow and user experience and UI that you interact with. So it's not confusing and you kind of can, can see the benefits as you go. So, yeah, so that's a fun one to be a part of and, and, uh, and it's definitely been a leader in, in the category. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? So I'd say I've got two kids, both are super active on the sports front. So I spend a lot of time uh, coaching and going to their games. Um, so that, that would be definitely one. I, I also am involved in our, in our family farm, Allendale farm. So I spend a lot of time uh, on that as well, which is, which is a fun thing to do. And as I said before, kind of right nearby. Um, and then I let, you know, love to get outside whenever I can. Um, we just, my family actually, we just finished a, a trip to the Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton out in uh, Montana, Wyoming. So that was great. Um, but oh, those, are, cool. yeah, those, those are, those are some of the things I like to do. Cool. Well, Lars, thanks so much for taking the time to share the whole background story, all, all these great companies and all the great advice you shared along the way. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. 
Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.